when it comes to the book of Revelation, I'm sure many of you are thinking, when's he going to tell us who the Antichrist is? Uh, I, I may or may not. You'll just have to wait and see. But uh, we will get to those exciting chapters later on. Um, Revelation is one of those books that is incredibly daunting. The first five chapters are actually okay. Most preachers will preach chapters one to five and then they'll suddenly uh, decide that the Lord has led them on to a different sermon series. Because once you get to chapters six to 19, that's when you get the beasts and the dragons and the seven heads and the ten horns or, and all of that stuff. And so what I want to do over the next uh, three months, he says by faith, is to just work our way through the book. I think that we are living in, I think it would be, it would take you to be very blind or, or silly to not say we're living in very turbulent times. Um, in the past, I have preached Revelation before and I've tried to steer away from a planet too much to our own situation. I think with the era we're living in and even how things have shifted in the last two or three years, I think it's impossible not to apply it to our situation but I just want to say up front the first three four uh, chapters will be much more of a background uh, and then and, and they're incredible and they're amazing and they're awe-inspiring and, and, and all of that but then we will get into the the numerology and the imagery and all of that and revelation is full of imagery and and numbers and and, and we live in, an, in, a, in, a, in a generation that is it's all about imagery. You know, people prefer to watch than read. That's why, in spite of all the recession, in spite of all the, that goes on, cinemas are still packed. That's why Instagram is now becoming more popular than Facebook, because people prefer images than text. That's why this week it caused such a stir when a magazine in Australia published a picture of Serena Williams throwing a dummy out of a, whatever it was, because an image said so much more than an article. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we have to realize that it is full of symbols and imagery. And that is where people get confused because we try to decode and decipher that. And we will be trying to do that. But I just want to warn you up front that, that this book is full of things that for 2,000 years people have had different interpretations on. And uh, I will say things that are my perspective and how I study it. I will say things on what other scholars, I will say things that different scholars disagree on and somewhere along the line you will form your own opinion but uh, I want us above all to get to grips with what the word of God says what it said 2,000 years ago to those who first read it and what it says to us in 2018 in Costadale Craigavon and so let's pray as we come to God's word I need help you need help we all need help so Holy Spirit, please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. People are always trying to predict the future. It's part of our nature as humans. We are obsessed with the future. We're obsessed with what is to come. That's why even non-Christians go to psychics and mediums and fortune tellers and tarot card readers and and, and 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 they read their stars and they're involved in the occult and the whole thing about Nostradamus we are a people who are obsessed with knowing the unknown with knowing beyond the realms of the physical and material and the church is no different 
from shortly after Jesus returned to heaven, the church has tried to determine and date when he is returning. I remember shortly after I became a Christian in 1990, going to a number of meetings, there was a guy, Barry Smith, anybody remember? You're showing your age. Um, There's a guy, Barry Smith, true. And he used to go on tour and he used to do these incredible presentations. He was Australian, I think, or New Zealand guy. Yeah. And, and he used to do these incredible presentations and he would have these wonderful charts and, and, and he would tell us, you know, the timeline and, and how the EEC, you know, the EU was the, the, uh, the Antichrist or was going to be under the. I actually want to look at the EU at the minute. It might be, but that's a whole other issue. Don't look at my Facebook post yesterday. Um, um, but uh, but 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 then and, and, and the mark of the beast was barcodes. So every time you bought a packet of potato, cheese, and onion, you were supporting the Antichrist. And there was all these things and all these speculations and all this. Um, it was all nicely mapped out, and there was so much truth in what he said. But there was also it was all just a little bit too neat and tidy. Um, and actually, when you look at the book of Revelation. It isn't just as neat and tidy as that. It jumps about a lot. As one commentator I, say, I read said this, Jesus changes costumes a lot throughout this play. One minute he's a lamb, next minute he's something, you know, he's on a throne wearing a robe, next minute he's walking among his churches. Jesus, and so it's not that neat and tidy a book. It isn't in chronological order. It is a number, it is a vision in a number of scenes that the Apostle John had. Then I remember when I was a young Christian watching movies like In the Blink of an Eye where there was this awful music in the background and the rapture happened and all the Christians disappeared. And then after that, more recently, there's been the series of Left Behind books. When I lived in the States 20 years ago, these things were selling by the millions. I mean, there was a series of maybe 15 or 20 Left Behind books and literally uh, they were being snapped up by Christians everywhere. And a lot of Christians' theology came from those books. There's even been a number of movies made about them. Um, and I'm... I'm conscious as we come to this series in Revelation that we can fall into one of two camps. We can get so bogged down by all the imagery and all the pictures that we just give up reading it. And if you've tried to read Revelation from start to finish, it's very easy for that to happen. When it talks about scrolls and beasts and dragons and seals and Babylon and seven heads and ten horns and prostitutes. It's easy just to go, you know what, let's just stick with the Gospels. I can kind of get that. And then there's others who get so caught up in trying to decode every single word that there's some hidden message and if we can just get the secret code then we can read the newspaper and the book of revelation together and we can match it all up and we can figure out exactly what the future is it's like this divine puzzle that god has given us to solve some secret mystery and so we have all these fanciful interpretations that every image in revelation links to something that's happening in the middle east or in russia or in iran and that may be the case, but it's not always the case. And so as I go through the book, I, I'm going to do a number of things. The first thing we do when we study scripture, and this is just a, a helpful lesson in studying scripture, is the first question we ask is, what did the writer mean when he first wrote it to the first people who read it? This was written to a group of people in a certain context at a certain time. However, it also makes clear that it is also written for us today. The reason being that a lot of what has, 
is described in the book of Revelation hasn't taken place yet. 2,000 years on. And so it is written for a context, but for the last 2,000 years, it is an unfolding book. And I feel like it is unfolding more rapidly right now before our eyes. But we need to understand, first of all, the context. We need to understand how the church has interpreted And we need to understand then how it applies to you and I living here in 2018. And so we're going to begin with chapter 1, which is a good place to start. Let's look at the background. Verses 1 and 2. We will not be looking at every single verse, but we will try to look at as much. You will get a good grasp of Revelation by the time we are through this series. Let's look at the background. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 1. And excuse me, I'm still a little congested and I can kind of hear half. It's like that when you get off an airplane. I've had that for a few weeks now. And so uh, if I sound like I've got a cold or something, I don't know what's going on um the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants what must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of god and the testimony of jesus christ so we're told who the author is right at the start some bible books you don't know who the author is the book of hebrews nobody knows People say Paul wrote Hebrews. He probably didn't. We're told right here and we're told in three other places that the author of the book of Revelation was John the Apostle. The same John who wrote the gospel. The same John who had a brother called James. They were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder which says something about their personality. The same John who was one of Jesus' closest disciples in inner circle. Remember, Peter, James and John got to see things that nobody else saw. They got to see the, a little girl being raised. They got to the Mount of Transfiguration. John was one of Jesus' closest followers. In fact, he called himself the beloved disciple. Now, he's the only one who called himself that, so we're not completely sure if it's true, and only in his own gospel. But, but he was close to Jesus. At the Last Supper, he put his head on Jesus' chest. He was a close follower of Jesus. And it makes it very clear that this book was written by the Apostle John. Now, this book was written somewhere around 95 AD. If you consider that Jesus was crucified somewhere in the early 30s AD, you have to imagine that by 95 AD, John is getting on a bit. He's probably late 80s, early 90s. He's an old man. He's no spring chick. He is probably about 90, but what's happening when John has the vision and wrote this book? Well, in the 90s AD, the emperor in the Roman empire was a guy called Domitian. There had been persecution for about 30 years among the Christians. There was a, an emperor in the 60s uh, called Nero who wanted to see what Rome looked like on fire and so he set it on fire. It caused a bit of a stir and he said let's blame the Christians and so um, the Christians were pretty much despised by their neighbours because they were seen as atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods and so they seemed to be a good bunch of people to blame and so there had been persecution and it died down a bit. Then this guy Domitian comes to the throne and like some people in power he has a little bit of a big head. In fact his head was so big he couldn't fit into a room and he had this idea that he wasn't just 
just an emperor, he was God himself. And if you are God, what do you want? Worship. And so he made this decree that every citizen of the empire had to show their loyalty to him by going to, he built temples, he even had robed choirs that followed him and sang songs about how mighty and powerful and awesome Domitian was. Um, and he had temples built in his honor, golden statues of himself, and you had to go and make some sort of offering to him to pay homage to him. In fact, in some cities like Ephesus, where Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it said that when you went and made an offering to Domitian, they placed a mark on your hand or on your forehead to show that you'd done it and you could only buy and sell in the market if you had that mark. Already some of it starts to fall into place in the current context that they were living in. And so as you can imagine, if you were a Christian, if you were a Christ follower, this caused a bit of a problem. Because Domitian had a title for himself, and it was the Lord God. And if you were a Christian, you had only one Lord God. And you followed his son called Jesus. And so this caused a little bit of conflict. And so the Christians simply said no, or many of them did. They said, we will honor and respect Domitian as we're called to do, to honor the authorities. We will pray for him like we're taught to do. But when it comes to worshiping him, that's where we draw a line in the sand. Well, Domitian wasn't overly impressed. And so he began to systematically persecute the Christians. He threw some of them to the lions. Apparently, he used to throw these lavish parties. And to light up his garden, he would cover Christians in tar and set them alight and just let them burn. And they were his human candles for his party. They were beheaded. They were crucified. They were beaten. Their neighbors turned against them because they were seen as, like I say, have been atheists. And the whole thing at this time was that the unity of the empire was built on, on worshipping these gods, and these gods brought prosperity to the empire. So if you didn't worship these gods, then you were probably going to cause the, the prosperity of the empire to fail. And so their neighbours turned against them. Also, they were put out of their homes. They were uh, uh, put out of their communities. Some of their own families disowned them. Their businesses were boycotted. Can't imagine that happening today. They lost their jobs for their faith. All because they believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and he alone should be worshipped as God. Do you know that today, every year, somewhere between 170,000 and 200,000 Christians are martyred every year for their faith in 2018? So as we gather here in Craigavon, safe and comfortable, slightly warm, there are Christians around the world who are having their heads cut off, they're having their families taken away, they're having their churches burned, they're having their property confiscated, all because they're doing exactly what we are doing this morning. There was persecution from outside the church. But within the church, there was also problems. So there was the external persecution from, the, from Domitian and from the emperor and the empire. But there was also problems inside the church. And the problems were this. There were problems of compromise, where there were people who were just saying, look, guys, chill out. Let's just go along with it. And then there were also problems of immorality. 
there were those who were not living holy lives from within the church. So there was immorality, sin, compromise, and corruption. And so there's this huge pressure on Christians from inside and outside, and it all feels like too much to handle. And if you're a Christian then, and sometimes if you're a Christian now, you find yourself asking this question. If God is really God, why is this happening? If Jesus is really Lord, if he is King of Kings, and if God is seated on the throne, why is life so rubbish? I know none of you will ever have asked yourself that question. If he's good and he's in control, why is he doing nothing? Why is life so hard? Within the church, there were also false prophets and false teachers spreading heresy. You know, as we look around the world today, I mean, I started to make a list and I realized this list was going to go on forever. I mean, even just the floods in the States, which are getting more press than the typhoon in the Philippines, even though it's much more dangerous and has caused much more damage. There's Israel and Gaza, there's ISIS, there's Iraq, Iran, Syria, Russia, storms, hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, terrorism, tsunamis. There's the political situation, there's Brexit, there's debt, there's Donald Trump, there's, I'm not even going to go there, my filter has just kicked in, and you might be surprised where I'd go. Um, there's polarization, I mean the, the world stage and the political stage is getting more polarized than ever. It's very hard to have a middle ground these days. We're being pushed apart into different camps. And there is this huge crisis in our world at the minute. These are unusual times. These are turbulent times. These are not normal times that we are living in. So there's a stuff out there, but then there's a stuff closer to home. Sickness. Relationship struggles. Loneliness, depression, debt, bereavement, fears. You know, there's not a lot of good news. I watch the news most days and normally halfway through Becky picks up her phone and goes, I can't watch this anymore because it's either too grotesque or too depressing. There's not a lot of good news out there. There's not a lot of things happening. And it's very easy as you watch the news and current affairs and world affairs unfolding to ask, where is God in this? And that's what the church were doing in the first century. They were asking, where is God? And that's the context that John has this vision that he records in Revelation. Revelation is Jesus' message to his people, the church, when they're suffering, when they're struggling, and when they need to find meaning, purpose, and hope in the midst of a mess. It's Jesus' message to his people when they're suffering and struggling to find meaning. Look at verse 9 with me. Conviction or compromise. I know we're not going to get where we go, but you know what? We're just going to stop at certain times and we'll pick up next week. Conviction or compromise, verses eight and, or verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The island of Patmos was a little island about 10 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And when I say island, that's probably an understatement. Don't be thinking Tenerife. Don't be thinking Majorca. Think of volcanic rock, a volcanic rock, a barren little land 
with not much else on it. It was a brutal, horrible place to live. And the only thing that John was there for was to work under hard labor. Apparently, a Christian historian tells us that they tried to put John into a, a, a pitcher of boiling tar to kill him, and he actually just got out of it alive. So they didn't know what to do with him, so they just sent him off to Patmos, um, where he was well out of the way. But like Alcatraz, get him on an island, can't do much harm there. So he's on this island, he's in exile, and he's being punished and beaten. And here we find John, he's the last remaining apostle at this time. All the others have been martyred or died, but actually they were all martyred. Um, he's an elder statesman of the church, He's over a, a, a region of churches um, in Turkey. He's in his 90s and he's been exiled. Why? Verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He had been warned what would happen. He had been told what would happen. His family and friends had even probably said, John, tone it down a bit. You're getting old. This is the time to retire. Put your feet up. Watch Netflix. You know, just chill out. Put your feet up. Collect your pension. Just take it easy, John. You're an old man. You've served Jesus faithfully. Let others do their job now. Just keep your head down. Why not just go and, and go through the motions and, 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 and pay a little bit of homage to Domitian? I mean, really, who's going to care? Everybody respects you anyway. But he couldn't help himself because he knew that there was another king. He knew that there was a true king called Jesus, before whom Caesar, his empire, and every tribe and tongue and nation needed to bow the knee. And so he might be persecuted, exiled, or even killed, but he would not be silenced. He was going to preach Jesus whether he lived or whether he died. He didn't care. And so he's banished to the island of Patmos, an old man playing, who should be playing with his grandchildren alone under hard labor just because he loves Jesus. He's cut off. He's isolated. He's lonely. He's probably fearful. He's worried about the churches that he has started. And yet... His priority above all is loyalty to Jesus Christ. You know, when I read this, I honestly have to ask myself, what would I do? Really, if I was in John's situation, what would, what would you do? Would you just go, you know what? It's not really worth it. Let's just go. I mean, God knows what's in my heart anyway. I'd be so tempted to compromise. I hope I wouldn't. I think we all hope we wouldn't. But the pressure and the temptation for an easy life is always there. And I'm sure there's also always a sense of, you know what, why don't I just do it? Because I don't want to upset my friends and neighbors who don't follow Jesus. And maybe actually if I just go along with it, it'll make Jesus more attractive to them. And so maybe a bit of compromise won't do any harm because that's how we rationalize sin and disobedience in our head. You know, I'm all for making the gospel attractive to the world. I'm all for not being overly dogmatic or legalistic. I'm all for making our message relevant to the culture we live in. But my fear for our 
generation of Christians is that we have become more concerned with what the world thinks about us and with what Jesus thinks about us. We've become more concerned with pleasing our culture and being accepted in the world's eyes than being faithful towards Jesus. And part of it is a reaction, and I understand that. Because many of us grew up in a culture which was all hellfire and brimstone and which put people off the church. Where there was no grace, where there was no love, where it was all about wearing your Sunday best and you were dangled over hell to try and scare you into heaven. And, 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 and a lot of us came from that culture. And so we have swung the other way to a place where we think, well, we just want people to like us. And if people like us enough, maybe they'll like Jesus too. And if we can just be nice, and if we can do enough nice things, and we'll not talk about Jesus too much, we'll just be nice, and they'll see our nice lifestyle, and then they'll follow Jesus. And I think we've become too cool to be true, in many cases. I've seen this among many of my peers. The Anglican Church, of which we are a part, has tried for the last 50 years to think if we can compromise the central doctrines of the Christian faith, the culture which is not going to church will come in their droves. And there are the churches that have done that are the ones that are carpet stores, Indian, Indian restaurants and mosques. Because there is something in our culture that recognizes the truth, that wants men and women with backbone that wants people who are willing to stand for truth even when it's unpopular, who are willing to be persecuted. You know what they said in the first century? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, when the blood of the martyrs was spilled, the church grew. And haven't we seen that around the world today? The churches are thriving in those places where there's been greatest persecution. The only places that the churches aren't thriving in the 21st century are the places where the Christians have been most comfortable for the last 50 years. Look at China. They can't slow the church down in China. There are more members of the Christian church in China than there are of the Communist Party today. There are more people worshipping Jesus in China. It's something they say at least 100 million followers of Jesus in China. Why? Because they kept beating them and persecuting them and they kept growing. But in our comfortable situation, we can be seduced into just going with the flow and to just compromising and blending like a chameleon, just hoping to keep our heads down and making it to heaven. And you know, in every generation, there's that crisis moment, there's that point of decision. For John in the first century, it was about what he worshipped Domitian. What's ours? That's what I've been trying to ask myself. If for them it was, would you go to a temple and make a tiny offering to this emperor, this compromise, what is ours in the 21st century? I'm going to give you what I think it is. You can totally disagree with me. I think it's the area of human sexuality. I think the enemy's greatest attack on our culture right now is in the area of human sexuality. And I'm not getting up here to do a rant against homosexuality or any of that stuff. I am just saying that the enemy's greatest attack for the last 20 years or so has been against the family. And if you can destroy the family, you can destroy a culture. Because his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. It has never changed. 
and his goal is to steal, kill and destroy from families. Whether that be through redefining marriage, causing people to be so confused about their sexuality that that you can identify as whatever you want when you're eight years old and people have to call you by that name. I mean, what is going on in the world where you can use any toilet you want in some places? Because you, insert, if I were to go to certain stores in America, I could walk into the woman's toilets right now because I could say I identify as a woman and they couldn't do a thing about it. Like, what is wrong? Pornography is the same. It's exactly the same. It's an assault on marriage and sexuality. It is rampant in our culture. And I know it's an uncomfortable subject for us to talk about in church, but it is part of this church, folks. If the statistics are to be believed, it is endemic in the church as it is out there in the world. And this isn't to condemn. It's actually probably to comfort you a bit if if you're struggling with it, to say you're not alone. We're going to start some sort of group for the men to begin with anyway because it's not only a man issue. I'm watching this series called Conquer. Uh, it's an American thing at the minute. But once I've watched it all, I'm hoping to run a men's group to deal with this because as men, even if you don't struggle with it, you need to be equipped to, to help others who do. This is going to be... This is going to be the greatest addiction of our age if it's not already. If somebody came in here addicted to heroin and F led a church with many heroin addicts, we can see it. You can sit here with your hands and, and stand here with your hands in there and be addicted to pornography. And yet the part of your brain that that hits is exactly the same as heroin. And so folks, we can't, we're not going to sweep this stuff under the carpet. We're not going to embarrass, we're not going to judge, we're not going to humiliate, we're not going to condemn. We're going to bring it into the light. And the enemy hates the light. He loves secrets kept in the darkness. So his attack is on marriage. It is on family. It is on human sexuality. That is the area I believe that the church is called to stand firm in this generation. I am not a homophobe. But I will be labeled that at times. I can assure you I am not a homophobe. I could, I could point at many friends who are gay will tell you that I've never, ever done anything but love them and treat them with the utmost respect. If they walked in here now, they would come and sit beside me and give me a hug. Okay? I have counseled gay friends through breakups. I am not a homophobe. I am a Christian. And I can, lo- I can love somebody and disagree with their lifestyle and their opinion without hating them. But our culture has told us that if you disagree with me, you must hate me. Therefore, they will put labels on us that are not true. They will try to silence us because I don't want those labels. I want to be liked, folks. I want to be liked. I want to be popular. And if you can demonize me by placing labels on me, I put a post on Brexit yesterday. Just, it was just my, the views of this pastor are not the views of Hope Community Church, okay? I put a post on Facebook on Friday night about Brexit, and I was called a nationalist and right wing by two Christians within a few hours. <laughs> All because I said, well, I'll not tell you what I said. The filter has kicked in again, okay? But that is the way our culture works. 
if you can label people as white supremacists, as nationalists, as Nazis, as homophobes, whatever that is, then that label sticks and the temptation then is, I don't want to be labeled like that, I'd better shut up. I don't want to be labeled like that because that is not me. I want to be labeled as loving, compassionate, kind and caring because that's the church of Jesus Christ. But I also can't rip out the pages in this book that I don't like or that this culture doesn't like just to be seen as kind, compassionate and caring. I can't do it. And as your pastor, I would do you the greatest disservice if I were to only preach the parts of this book that the culture likes because I would have to rip out a lot of it. And so we are a people of kindness and compassion and grace. And every single person, regardless of background, religion, sexual orientation, or wherever they're at in life, is welcome in this church. Jesus loves them unconditionally. His blood was shed for them. But Jesus calls us when we come and bow the knee before him to transform our lives. If we say he is Lord of our lives and our lives are not transformed, he is not Lord of our lives. He accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. His spirit comes and lives within us and transforms us from the inside out. And so this is the battle of our culture in the 21st century. And we are not going to go out and rant and hold placards and have demonstrations. We're simply going to love people and share the good news of Jesus in the most kind, truthful way we can. Because Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we are a church that is going to be full of grace and truth. That is, for me, the defining issue of the 21st century for us. And I hate it. Because I love gay people. Don't tweet, tweet that, please. <laughs> Craig loves gay people. <laughs> but I do. I really do. I love gay people. I love... I love them. I had a guy, a guy a couple used to go to... A gym I went to. Phil and Paul... They'd been partners for 17 years. And they broke up and, and I spent a lot of time counselling one fellow who'd met him for lunch because he was devastated. And you know what he said to me? He said, I have a minister lives next door to me just off the Malone Road, a minister from another denomination. He said, I've lived beside this guy for so many years. He says, that minister comes out of his house. Every day I say hello to him and every day he turns his back on me and gets in the car and won't speak to me. He says, why are you talking to me? We are a people of love and compassion, but we're a people of truth. And we have got to find that balance, church. We have got to find that balance, and that's hard. And sometimes we'll push one way, and sometimes we'll push the other too hard, and that's okay. But somewhere in the middle, we'll find the balance. Because that's the Jesus way. Woman, I don't... Where's, where's, where's the people who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Not just neither do I condemn you. Will change your life. At some point, we've got to ask ourselves what are we willing to die for? What are we willing to actually risk stuff for? What are we willing to be unpopular for? 
who are what is most important in our lives? What are you willing to be persecuted for? You see, a relationship with Jesus, and I've said this before, it's personal, but it's not private. Our marriage is personal, but it's not private. It's between us, but it's public. And if I were to say to Becky, look, can we just hide this between us? And if we're walking down the street, just pretend we're friends. We don't want to offend anyone who's not married. She would think either I'm not committed to her or I'm ashamed of her. I wonder, does Jesus sometimes think that? So Jesus, or so Paul, because of Jesus, has been banished to this remote island. Old man, I'd expect him to be a bit of a grumpy old man at this stage, feeling sorry for himself. I'd expect him to be angry at God, saying, God, why am I going through all this pain and suffering? I've served you for 60 years. Remember back when I left the nets and followed you, Jesus? Remember, Jesus, when you were on the cross? And you said to me to look after your mother. It was John that he said that to. And I did. I looked after her until she died, Jesus. You owe me one. I'd expect that, but look what he's doing. Verses 10 and 11, and we'll finish here. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. (laughs) And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I love that. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So this wasn't just some thing in his head. This was something he heard externally. And he heard a trumpet. I, only, I, was, I was still studying this this morning. I've been just loving this. I was up at 5.15 this morning just because I wanted to study more of this. And I, I fell asleep nearly at half seven again. But... Uh, but I hadn't thought about this. The trumpet. What does a trumpet say? So, there's so much of revelation. There's 350 references to the Old Testament. What in the Old Testament does a trumpet symbolize? One battle, two worship. Battle and worship. He heard a trumpet. In other words, there's going to be battle and there's going to be worship. He heard a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a stroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it's Sunday. He's on this little rock in the middle of nowhere. And instead of feeling sorry for himself, he's having church. He's worshiping Jesus. If he can't get to church, he's going to have church. And he's worshiping Jesus. Maybe he's singing songs. Maybe he's praying, but it says he's in the spirit. He's caught up into this place of vision and, and, and just this supernatural encounter with Jesus. I wonder how many Sundays he had done that. I wonder how many Sundays he had had this worship time and nothing had happened. See, here's my point. That on a Sunday you come to church and some weeks you'll just come to church, you'll sing the songs, you'll hear the word, you'll go home. And there'll be a temptation some Sundays just to go, ah, I'll just stick on YouTube. But then there's some Sundays when God will show up. (laughs) This was one of those Sundays when Jesus showed up. The Bible says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing As we gather together to encourage each other, Jesus shows up. 
We read in the Revelation 1, I don't think we're going to get into it this morning, that there's the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And where's Jesus? He's not outside them. He's not beside them. He's in the middle of them. Jesus is in the middle of his church. And he's worshipping, or John's worshipping, he's seeking God. He has this vision, he has this experience. In the lowest point of his life, God meets with him and lifts him to the highest place. On this isolated island where he's lonely as an old man who should have a carer calling twice a day. Jesus is with him. And Jesus is caring for him. And I want to say to you this morning as I finish up, there's no place so remote, no place so barren, no situation so desperate, and no circumstance so painful that Jesus can't meet you there. He can find you. And maybe today you feel lonely or isolated. Maybe you're struggling or afraid. Jesus can meet you here. And actually, more than that, in the midst of your most difficult time, that can make your most fruitful time. Do you know John Bunyan? Have you ever heard of John Bunyan? Pilgrim's Progress? Do you know what was written while he was in prison for 12 years? If John Bunyan wasn't in prison for 12 years, he wouldn't have Pilgrim's Progress. The most difficult places in your life can be the most fruitful places in your life. Where's David Parks? Is he here? David? Two months ago, a month and a half ago, one of the most difficult times of your life? One of the most fruitful times of your life? Did you encounter Jesus more? Was he more real to you? I know he is. There's a testimony right there. A guy who was told, do you mind if I say? A guy who was told he may well have his bowel cut out within a few days. Encountered Jesus in the midst of that. And I want to say to you that no matter what you're facing today, no matter what you're going through, Jesus can find you. He is with you. He is speaking to you. He gives strength to the weak. When your heart is breaking, his kingdom breaks in. When your heart is doubting, he gives you faith. When you're timid, he gives you courage. When you're fearful, he gives you peace. When you're feeling defeated, he declares victory over you. When you feel hopeless, he speaks hope. He is with you and he is for you. I'm just going to finish with a story. Worship team, if you could come up, please. Stories told of a group of Bible college theological students who were training for the ministry and a caretaker or a janitor, as it was, because it took place in the States. And the students were for a season playing basketball in a nearby high school gym to where they were studying. And while they played, the janitor, who had graciously allowed the students to come in and use the, the gym, the, the, the only stipulation was he had to be there while they were using it. When they would come in, he would say, look, they were Bible college students. He said, can I borrow one of your Bibles? And they would give it to him, and they would play basketball. And he would sit in the corner reading the Bible. And one day, one of the young men said to the janitor, what have you been reading in the Bible? Revelation, he replied. And the Bible college student chuckled, yeah, right. No, really, said the janitor. And the Bible college student had heard one of his professors say that no one really understands a strange book. So he asked him, do you understand what you've been reading? Oh, yes, said the smiling janitor, chuckling again. 
The Bible college student asked almost sarcastically, well then tell me what it means. The janitor looked to his right and then to his left, leaned into the student's ear and whispered, it means that Jesus is going to win. It means that Jesus is going to win. And if I could change that slightly, I would say Jesus has already won. So whatever you're going through today, we'll get into the revelation that he has of Jesus next week. But I want to say to you, Jesus has already won. And things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. There's more than meets the eye. And there's things that are over your head. But I want to tell you, he's on the throne. And he's high above it all.